Breathing in diesel exhaust fumes is like walking into a fire without a mask. Over time, those toxins lead to cancer. Protect yourself with MagnaGrip, the easiest, most reliable exhaust removal system that features a true 100% seal to eliminate diesel exhaust fumes. To get free grant assistance, visit MagnaGrip.com. TheFireStore.com, equipping protectors with passion. That's how we operate, and it's how we live. We understand that having the right gear can make the difference between life and death. Our goal is to get you the gear you need, when you need it, at prices you can afford. Visit us at thefirestore.com and shop our deals page. Taking it to the streets is all about advancing firefighter safety and operational integrity for the fire service through provocative insights and dynamic discussions dedicated to both the art and science of firefighting and the traditions of the fire service. The focus at Taking It to the Street continues to be straightforward, street-level talk with intelligent, stimulating, and provocative insights and dynamic discussion with interactive dialogue and, most importantly, listener participation. Just like around the kitchen table or in the day room over a cup of coffee at 02.30 after a good run. And now, the latest edition of Taking It to the Streets with your host, Christopher Knopf. Welcome to this edition of Buildings on Fire's Taking to the Streets. I'm your host, Chris Nam, on your street, in your city, across the country, and around the world. Again, this is another exceptional edition of Buildings on Fire, Taking the Streets, your monthly radio talk show program on fireengineering.com. And again, uh, for our listeners here, if you're listening in for the first time, we want to welcome you to our program. Um, I'm joined by my esteemed colleague, Chief Doug Klein, out of uh, South Carolina. Doug, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for coming back on the show. We've got an exceptional series that hopefully you're listening into or are aware of, but this is part two of our new series that we are rolling out, which is part of a four-part series on the commercial fire ground. We're going to be talking about uh, some, some issues dealing with today's challenges, dealing with the commercial fire ground. This is part of a four-part series program. This is part two. Our part two program is going to be focusing in on building construction, uh, associated uh, risks associated with those particular aspects, but again, continuing our common thread of our model of first arriving construction, tactics, and safety. So, Doug, uh, welcome. We did a uh, we had a great uh, rollout on your uh, uh, program on fire and training which was part one, where we talked about today's challenges and preparations. Uh, why don't you give us a quick little recap on what was uh, presented on part one of our series? Well, in part one, we really dove into, Chris, the, the whole concept of what we need to be doing. First of all, it's you've got to be out in your streets. You've got to be in these buildings. You've got to be looking at these buildings from a lot of different angles and a lot of different perspectives. And that comes down to when you're doing your pre-incident surveys, are you looking at the components of what type of building is it? What's the, the construction features? What's your tactical operations going to be? Apparatus placement. Do we really know what the occupancy has in store for, for us on the inside, which is, you know, the materials, how they mix together? Uh, what's the content loading? How much merchandise do they have? What's the occupancy factors? 
you know, what's our tactical deployments going to be? What are our challenges? There's a lot of factors that we're playing into in part one that, that gets down to the fact that the most important thing we can be doing is, is preparing ourselves to be going to these particular responses, all responses, but these particular in the commercial building, because it's a challenge. We, we run bread and butter operations all day long on, on our 1,800, 2,000 square, square foot homes that are residential, residential tactics. But when it comes to commercial buildings, and, and again, I mentioned this in the first show, is you ask folks, how many times have you been 100 foot or 150 foot deep into a commercial building operating on a hose line, specifically the, the tactical hose line you probably should be pulling, a two and a half or a two inch hose line that gives you the volume of water. And I've asked that question a number of times. I asked it uh, when I was in the asset conference in West Virginia just uh, over the weekend. Uh, one of the big things that I found was this, Chris, nobody's hands are going up. And that, that's, that's alarming to us as, as folks that are tacticians that study this, that understand the complexities of buildings. And that's what we began talking about. And, and I'm looking forward to diving into the, the concepts of constructions, predictability, performance, and everything that we need to be talking about with our listeners so that they're better prepared in part two. Yeah, absolutely, Doug. And, and again, I think for our listeners, uh, you know, we recognized in, in many of our other programs throughout this past year, uh, both as uh, Doug and I have either presented individually or have teamed up and have been sort of co-hosting and, and co-guesting on each of our programs, that the common thread of both of our programs, whether it be for the, from the training standpoint, the operational standpoint, or the built environment standpoint that is sort of first and foremost on, on this program, um, there are so many influencing factors. But when we talk about the structural fireground and we talk about the structural fireground in terms of fireground operations in the uniqueness of commercial buildings, one of the challenges is this, is that we either have quite a bit of experience based upon our first due, our, our company, our response area and so forth, or we are significantly lacking. Um, and if we are significantly lacking, more often than not, we have a false sense of appreciation of the severity, the urgency, and the growth potential. Uh, we have a false sense of appreciation for how rapid fire can extend and impact and influence the building from a adverse standpoint. In other words, the building itself may not be able to withstand the effects of that fire load that's in that building, either through direct impingement or through uh, external uh, exposures that may result in a series of cascading events that is bad, whether it be a adverse condition within the compartment of which those compartments themselves are rather large in size and in volume, unlike our residential buildings that are smaller, compact and so forth. But there are a lot of challenges here when uh, we get into it. And, and again, uh, Chief Klein did speak extensively in part one of our series about the low frequency, uh, high risk associated aspects of that. Uh, very quickly here, I just want to give our listeners that might be listening in for the first time or to, again, just to uh, reinforce what's coming up. So part one of our program, which rolled out on fire and training on Chief Klein's uh, podcast and webcast. Uh, part one was the commercial fireground, which rolled out our series, just got into our conversation dealing with today's challenges and preparation. 
In this episode of Buildings on Fire, Taking to the Streets, we're talking about the commercial fire ground and, and talking more about construction-related aspects and associated risks. Part three of our program uh, will uh, deal with expanding that conversation and getting into the operational perspectives and looking at, again, first arriving construction tactics and safety, but operations both at the uh the tactical level as well as the command level. We have a couple of great guests lined up on our series. We've got Chief Alan, uh, Chief Aaron Heller out of New Jersey. We've got uh, Chief Jason Holverman out of Missouri. Uh, Chief Klein out of uh, South Carolina will be joining us, and we may have one other guest uh, that'll round out our program here in that uh, extended um, program that we'll have as part three. You can expect that to be uh, a very robust and involving conversation and then we are planning on having a part four of our series and that will deal with the commercial fire ground dealing with lessons learnings and uh, the new risks associated with those particular events uh, when we get into our part three series uh, and part four we'll talk a little bit more about some uh, case studies and other events that uh, really have uh, molded the fire service regarding operations and so forth and again you know, it goes back to the whole aspect of, you know, stretching and operating in a building that you have no knowledge of or insights of or consideration for uh, is derelict in placing you and your company at risk. You've got to have this building intel. Um, one of the things that we began talking about, and uh, Doug, again, you mentioned talking about pre-incident information and the templates coming out of the pre-fire planning NFPA code and so forth, but we've got to understand the built environment. We certainly need to understand uh, the building construction because the building construction directly and indirectly influences our fire ground operations. It influences our decision-making and our considerations. And I would also offer this is that much of the research and insights and influences that are coming out of additional research, learning more about the fire load packages, vent path, flow paths, are even more critical as they relate to the commercial building we talk about uh, structural integrity, we talk about compartment performance, because our compartments sometimes are the, literally the uh, surrounding perimeter walls, it's the roof system, it's the floor system, and you've got this rather sizable degree of square footage, and more importantly, some type of volume of either uh, directly exposed space or concealed areas that are going to be common to our commercial buildings. And then it's going to be the other uh, two aspects dealing with time considerations and uh, firefighting impacts, what type of strategy, tactics, and operations that we may have involved in there. Um, one of the first and foremost aspects when we talk about building construction and we talk about the architectural and engineering influences of that, go back to uh, what's considered a, a broad-based term, and that term deals with the methods and materials of, of construction or the methods and materials of modern construction specifically. And I'm going to pose a question to, uh, to Doug here in a minute concerning hybrid construction, but the methods and the materials of construction all are going to be directly related based upon the era and vintage in which these buildings were built. Now, for our program here today, um, due to the fact that we could be talking about so many different aspects here, uh, we don't want to sort of go off center too much, but we want to try to focus in on some of the newer types of construction here that will lead us into the, as Doug mentioned in part one, about uh, the, the, uh, uh, the type six type of construction. But I'll mention this when we talk about methods and materials of construction. 
It has everything to do with the simplicity or the complexity of the building. It has everything to do with the footprint and the occupancy risk of the building. So we are familiar with the terminology of, of occupancy type. So I have a uh, building of commercial construction. It is a retail building or, or it is a commercial building that is selling some type of commodity. Well, depending upon what it's selling, is it selling uh, fireworks, which is a different type of occupancy risk, or is it selling uh, is it selling uh, what you would normally find in a five and dime? Uh, again, something that has a different type of risk associated with the occupancy. So it's the footprint, the square footage, and the volume of the building. It's also the occupancy risk associated with the occupancy type. It's having a, an appreciation and a degree of understanding of the building and the compartment performance. And that goes back to the structural anatomy, meaning the materials, uh, both engineered structural systems, hybrid construction. How was that building built? What were the materials that went into the building? And how are they impacted by both flame and heat impingement? It is the fire and the occupancy loads that we spoke about in part one of our series. It's also the operability uh, of our fixed protection systems. Most commercial buildings, once we reach a certain threshold of square footages, unlike residential construction, have very specific types of code requirements, both in terms of life safety and fire separation, code-related aspects of fire integrity, compartmentation, and so forth, but also protection dealing with fixed fire suppression systems, their operability, and in some instances, the accessibility uh, uh, and access to uh, various types of uh, standpipe systems. And then lastly, it has everything to do with the firefighting portion of it, which specifically deals with uh, firefighting tactical mobility and uh, engagement. So uh, it gets into a lot of different aspects when we talk about engagement. These structures are uniquely different depending upon the square footages. And I will say this before I turn it over to Doug for some insights on the hybrid construction, is that when we talk about construction, Typically, the five fundamental building types, type one, two, three, four, and five. We talk about uh, fire-resistive, non-combustible construction. We talk about uh, uh, ordinary construction for our type three, uh, or masonry and wood construction, or brick and joist, and, and talking about old school. We talk about uh, heavy timber construction for type four, and then we talk about the elusive, ever-changing type five construction, which could deal everything from heavy timbered, or excuse me, different types of fully dimensioned type five construction wood framing, all the way up to engineered structural systems and the continuing challenges that are affecting us today with hybrid construction. So that is just a, a little snippet when we start going into the conversation. So Doug, you know, being you being a president and operating in a very uh, dynamic environment, which has everything from the 1950s uh, small strip shopping centers or the standalone, when I talk about standalone, it's that single commercial building that's located on a property with some type of parking area around it, that single type structure, however large or small, but typically of a smaller type of square footages, all the way to the big box of newer construction. So some of the insights of what's changed over the years uh, relative to construction and how What's going on with this whole concept of hybrid construction? And you you talked about branding and talking about the uh, uh, this old school, and again, was sort of tongue-in-cheek about type six construction, of which there is no type six. But how is hybrid construction really impacting you down there on the beach and in the Grand Strand? 
Well, it, it's it's definitely a factor, Chris. And, you know, many years ago when I talked to Frank on something else, he, he brought up and he called it the other stuff. And he said it's it's where they're putting so many different types of features into to buildings. Uh, we're seeing uh, a lot of uh, commercial structures going up with the aluminum studs that are in place, which is has been there for quite some time. We're also seeing the new style of wood that's transitioning in here with the what we call the particle two before, which is coming out of Oxford, North Carolina. And we're seeing most of that in residential construction, but we're also beginning to see it pop up in some of these smaller uh, standalone uh, units that are commercial buildings that are beginning to go up. And I think one of the things that, that is so important that, that we have to do when we start looking at hybrid construction is that it doesn't take but one or two features in there to change the entire dimensions of how that building is going to perform and how it's going to be predictable based upon its weakest link. And, you know, in, even in pre-planning, we talk about understanding the building. And that's, you know, what type of construction and installation are the walls, whether they're exterior, whether they're interior, there's a big difference. Uh, what you may expect when they renovate some of these buildings is that the exterior walls may be of one type. And then when the roof construction goes into place, there's a second type. Or when they go in and it's a, it's a big box store, it was somewhat designed uh, uh, for one style of building, then it's been repurposed and they put in and let's say they put uh, like lofts in for storage. Well, that may change from a masonry style construction on the exterior to, to where it didn't have a lot of what we would call internal walls to now that's got a wooden wall thrown up and wooden floors and things that were just not anticipated at the time when it was originally constructed, but has now been renovated, repurposed. And that's some of the things that we begin looking at in, in these, these stores that we're seeing. And, you know, one of the uniquenesses is as we walked around in Oklahoma City back in the summer and we saw some of these, these standalone businesses that were there, especially like the commercial restaurants and, and things like that, you could tell that these buildings have been renovated. There have been multiple changes inside. Um, many of these buildings have been now repurposed from what could have been an industrial style building to now a commercial occupancy. So basically, you know, they go in and, and we've changed these features and we may have added an atrium type component. We may have changed the floor plan or, or what was originally there and opened up non load bearing walls, but it changes all the dimensions. Or we may have come in and we've changed the dimensions inside to add and now instead of having uh, masonry walls on the inside, they threw up maybe the uh, aluminum style studding because it was available, it was quicker. And we all know during the time period of COVID, it was not about what you were building with, it was about what you could build with itself, what was available to you, what you could get your hands on, especially with, with as, you know, growth didn't stop for us. Growth hasn't stopped, you know, through a lot of the COVID time periods in many places of the United States. They continued to build. They continued to, to do things. And, of course, our supply chain was was a challenge. And whatever they could get, they began using and, and met, you know, the, the standards of the codes. And they could get exceptions or changes, you know, to their, their building permits. So 
a lot of that is is present across the United States, just not here along the coast or South Carolina. We have a lot of a lot of growth that's going on here, especially with these small businesses that are popping up and standalones and and the strip malls that are going in everywhere, which are called commercial road frontage, uh, that are associated to housing complexes and developments that are single family, multifamily that are the support mechanisms that go with that to be able to, you know, keep people in place. Or again, it, it's a good opportunity for people to open a business and, and sell commodities and goods. You know, one of the challenges is when, when we start classifying these particular buildings, uh, and again, I think that when we talk about risk, you know, again, uh, low frequency, high risk factors and, and associate operations, it has everything to do with the size of the building, its related uh, construction features that are going to influence our operational perspective. So we talked about the five fundamental building types. We've talked a little bit about uh, some of the expansion of that. But when we talk about the common themes uh, regarding the construction features and reading our buildings, it's very difficult and challenging at best to be able to uh, effectively and accurately size up our buildings today, especially when we talk about commercial construction, due to the fact that we have so much variation in terms of architectural treatments, those things that are aesthetic, that are non-functional in terms of what they look like or the appearance of something, and what they have a tendency to look like and want to be something like, but don't have any functional purpose. So there's a lot of smoke and mirrors that come into play with commercial buildings because, again, they are trying to draw in individuals to the buildings for their uh, services, their uh, sales, and, and so forth. So continuing challenge, we talk about sizing up and following the normal rules of engagement that many of our textbooks and methodologies and practices uh, revolve around. I think it's important to note when we talk about uh, some of our operational perspectives, it revolves around uh, five fundamentals. And those five fundamentals are part of our five-star command methodologies and practices. It should, should certainly be no, nothing new to our listeners. But again, let's reinforce those particular aspects. When we associate the methods and materials of construction, uh, we talk about construction, we talk about vintage and era, meaning when was that building built? Was it built in 2010, 2020, 1980s, 1970s, 50s, 60s, and so forth? And there's a lot of things that are drawn out of that era and vintage that relate back to construction, that relate back to building performance. But there's five specifics that revolve around the predictability model that um, are common to all buildings and are specific to our commercial buildings. That, that includes the construction systems, meaning do I have a building constructed of wood framing or some type of a wood system, whether it be a fully dimensioned or nominal dimensioned or engineered structures? Uh, is a hybrid structure that utilizes, a, as Doug mentioned, uh, both wood framing, let's say it's, it's engineered structural wood in combination with light gauge metal construction, which is a very, very common feature in, in our commercial buildings. It is the susceptibility of collapse and compromise to that building based upon how those materials are being utilized and in what capacity, which I'll talk about here in a moment. It is the occupancy type and occupancy risk. It is the methods and the materials of construction in terms of when they were built. Structures built within the last 15 to 20 years have a very common characteristic that is uh that is common in terms of how they were being built, 
that also translates back into tactical considerations and operations. Same thing if we talk about the kinds of commercial buildings built in the 1980s to the early 2000s, the types of structures built from the 1960s through to the 1980s, and then these different eras and periods. It's the method and the materials that were utilized at that point, and then it's the, the manner in which fire dynamics affects the materials and the methods of construction that relate back to collapse and compromise that influence our decision-making and operations. One of the things that commercial construction and those influencers have um, are inclusive of the following uh, categories. And again, I'm just going to sort of put those out there. We're going to talk more about these in greater detail in one of the other upcoming episodes here, but we want to at least plant the seed of those terms and such. So it's the construction classes. So it's part of the classifications that come out of the International Building Code, the International Construction Code, talking about construction classifications associated with certain square footages, certain occupancy types within the current standpoint. It's the types of roofing systems that may be present within the buildings. It is the types of perimeter wall construction. Do I have some type of panelized construction? Do I have concrete masonry units? Do I have tilt-up construction? So it's the perimeter walls that form the outer perimeter of that particular occupancy. It is the roofing system that goes in that provides the enclosure to the structure. And again, do I have a wood deck? Do I have a metal deck? Do I have mass timber construction? Do I have cross-laminate timber that now is becoming very, very common in both wall as well as roof and floor systems within the buildings. It is the characteristics of the compartment or series of compartments and also recognize that in our commercial buildings, sometimes the perimeter walls and the roof systems form the compartment of that particular building. So as you enter the building, you may have exposed uh, roof or ceiling areas with no type of separation with any type of a drop ceiling. So that entire compartment relative to the square footages in terms of the footprint and the cubic foot relative to the volume is the compartment of that building. So we have typically a lesser degree of compartmentation. It is the presence or the absence of floors and or basements, as well as mezzanines that may be present within the building. It is the type of both building, fire, and occupancy loads of the structure. So Commonly, we talk about fire loads of our buildings. In no other building or occupancy type <coughs> do we have a much higher degree of consideration for the fire load and its impact upon the building in terms of its construction materials as well as the fire conditions. So we have the fire load, we have the occupancy load of the employees as well as the public that are using the buildings based upon time of day and periods of, of time and so forth. And then there's also the building load, and that is inclusive of the fire load of the building's materials and components. It's also the load capacity of what is affecting the building from a structural standpoint. And then we get into some other aspects here that are that are also are considered when we talk about construction, and that is the fire flow-related conditions for protection, uh, sustainability of gallon per minute flow rates, operational time, and so forth. So there's a lot of moving pieces here that all fall under this concept of predictability of performance in our buildings. Um, Doug, when we talk about being familiar with our buildings, and this is a common theme in, in both of our programs uh, for, for many, many years, we talk about being familiar with our structures. What What is the one thing that 
always comes to mind when we think about the company, the company officer, and having some knowledge of the construction of the buildings. How, how is that best achieved? Well, the way that I see it is they got to be out there. And one of the first times being out there is not after the building's been built, but as the building's being built or renovated, that's your first stop. I want to definitely be there and, and see exactly what's going on, how it's going in. You know, one of the, the pieces that I think has to occur as well is that we're reoccurring our visits to the buildings and we're seeing any types of changes that go in because there are modifications that go quite frequently. And uh, I think about some of the changes that are not actually captured through the building process or through the code process that people skate around those resulted in, you know, two line of duty deaths in North Carolina and Salisbury in, in a commercial building that there were renovations done to that building that code enforcement or the, and the building departments knew nothing about and neither did the fire department because it had occurred and it, it was kind of in the midstream of, of pre-incident planning. And then all of a sudden things have changed and, and you're there. I think there's a lot that needs to go into that. When, and again, renovations is a time period because we know that some of these buildings, as they begin to get a little what I call tenured age on them, uh, people go in and they'll renovate them to make them you know, different or better. And, you know, we may be changing from one style of uh, a construction feature to another, uh, especially the interior finishes is, you know, something that we need to take uh, close, you know, looks at while we're in the building. Most of the time they're going to what is known as sheetrock now, and that's even better for us. It's, it's got a fire rating, but uh, some of the newer buildings I'm seeing that are popping up are all wood. They're putting wood finishes on the inside, and it's not the old paneling style wood finishes that we used to see in some of the, the structures, especially in residential. But even in commercial, now we're starting to see uh, them coming in with these fabricated style board systems that... Um, you know, or designer woods. And, you know, they're putting those up. They're very decorative. Uh, they use them for accent walls and certain types of uh, occupancies. And, you know, those are some challenges that, that we're seeing that I think we've got to stay on top of and we got to be out there. And that's, that's really the only way. And when you find something, part of what you've got to do is share it. And, you know, in the fire service, sometimes our ability to communicate and communicate well across shifts, across jurisdictions, doesn't occur. And that, that is a challenge that I think we've got to continue to work on. But again, it, it, it's critical in, in operations, you know, for cruising the streets. You know, you bring up a great point when you talk about the life cycle of a building. And that is, you know, as these buildings continue to live, so they are, they are built in a particular time era, uh, uh, era of time. And typically with commercial buildings, due to their very nature of use, have a more common frequency in which uh, uh, occupancies come and go. So we have a building that's constructed uh, in its initial stage and based upon a change in occupancy usage and change in tenant spaces, normally that results in some type of renovation or alterations, cosmetic or, or structural and so forth. But very often we have this whole combination of cosmetic changes that give it a different appearance. Um, as well as structural changes that create a myriad of different methods of construction and materials that span sometimes significant numbers of decades or years. Sometimes those changes occur quite rapidly over the course of a few months, right? 
businesses thrive, they fail. Some other new business comes in, takes over the tenant spaces, and we've got something different in there. Things are removed, things are replaced, uh, openings are made. Uh, and again, it's it's critical that we identify and go beyond, be, be, go, be, go beyond the cosmetic changes and identify the structural changes that are either subtle or significant that may have a influence or impact on fire ground operations. One of the most significant challenges when we try to size up our commercial buildings is that we either have a lot of things going on externally, meaning that there might be a lot of aesthetic or architectural treatments of these buildings. In reality, we have a a concrete masonry block building, which again, perimeter walls, flat roof system, or some type of slight, slight slope, sloping system with a, uh, let's say a steel bar joist metal deck roof. But there are so many different cosmetic uh, appendages. We have uh, uh, various types of extensions and false roof systems and hybrid construction and various types of treatments that are part of the storefront and so forth. But basically we have a certain type of building construction, but then we have the non-functional aesthetic treatments of the building, both external as well as, as sometimes internal of the building. So there's this continuing challenge of first arriving command and company officers to size up and assess and, and develop the skill sets that quickly identify those things that are that fall under one or the other. Uh, some of the other issues that relate that go beyond the life cycle uh, deal again with uh, less mass and material, especially when we talk about hybrid construction. One of the most common what I believe to be one of the most common uh, combination of construction features in most of our newer type of commercial, either new construction or renovations, is the introduction of a type two non-combustible uh, construction, primarily with like-age metal construction in combination with engineered structural systems that creates this hybrid building that are going to react differently whether we talk about direct flame and or heat impingement, that's going to affect the structural stability. So we get into this very narrow tactical window of understanding how much time we have before some things start compromising or failing. That goes back to that. So it's this material that's being present. It's the impact of fire. Uh, our buildings are more under tension than they are compression. We have increasing spans that create these bay areas in our buildings. And sometimes those spans may be limiting, or in some instances, again, uh, I would encourage our listeners to get into some of the big box stores and just take a look at where the common column is located and the girders that are coming off of that column relative to the beams and then the subcomponents of other joist systems that are coming off of that. We'll look at the size of that bay and take a look at how much space is sometimes between those bays, which may be substantial. And it may not take a lot of distress or instability of load transfers to affect uh, building instability and create these compromising conditions that, that may be cascading. So it's the span, it's the connections. Um, I always talk about voids, you know, having uh, an appreciation for the number of voids. And again, especially with older construction in our commercial buildings, voids continue to be a prominent contributor toward both uh, significant fire ground losses regarding uh, property, as well as contributors both to civilian and firefighter line of duty deaths and or injuries uh, that uh, uh, relate back to, again, the, the number of voids that may be present. And then it goes back to the operability of the protective systems that are there. So a lot of different challenges when we take all of those things into account 
and start start putting them together. Um, I you know, know one of the things, Chris, yeah, that uh, comes to my mind is we did this on a show probably a, a little over a year or so ago, and we talked about benchmarking of times. And that is so critical when we start looking at our area and vintage of our buildings and equating that to any types of renovations that, you know, may have occurred, the, the challenges of the changes that have been done to the building. And, you know, we're, we're famous for our benchmarking. And, and Chief Billy Dillon talked about this uh, with us on that show, is that do we need to change when we begin benchmarking some of our times? responding to these buildings and doing so on a regular basis, whether it's it's an alarm or if it's actually dispatched as a working fire. Um, either way, we need to be thinking about that clock has already been ticking in a fire's time period. And we talk about the degradation of the building uh, and the changes, you know, the challenges you were just talking about, about spans and things. How long is that building being compromised before we even get the notification? How long does it take us to respond? What, you know, what, what are we arriving with? What's our setup time before we can actually get operations going? And, you know, typically we start a benchmarking when we arrive on the scene, but we know from just history of these buildings that the things that are predictable and, you know, one of the ones that I look at is like uh, in Phoenix, when we did the collapse of that building through fire and, and we recognize that that particular style of building uh, we were getting roof collapse somewhere around the, the 16 to 17 minute mark. So we knew that, but how long have crews actually been on scene with the response? I mean, even if it's a quick notification and, you know, quick out of the station and you're on scene, you're talking six minutes. So you got 10 minute time period where we're benchmarking. Oh, it doesn't fail for 17 minutes. And, you know, we're seven minutes past due when, you know, we're inside the building at that mark. So I think that's another factor that we need to, to put in and begin. Maybe this is something that, that, that we look at even farther, Chris, on maybe the tactical show is what do we need to be planning on for, for construction features and maybe talking about that even more in depth. Yeah. And I think we will. And when we get into our conversation on part three of our series, talking about uh, the operational side of it, uh, we will dedicate uh, some time in our program to talk about benchmarking uh, the elapse of time. So in, in particular, again, when we when we think about the standalone type of, uh, of a small footprint commercial building. So, and again, uh, let, let's talk briefly. So when we talk about the small footprint type building, we're primarily talking about those structures uh, that are most vulnerable. And typically the most vulnerable square footages of our commercial buildings are around 25 to 30,000 square foot or less. And the reason being is that the larger the building, the more complex the fires may potentially occur. And as we typically see, the larger square foot buildings, um, if we're not able to control them in the very earliest stages, based upon response time, based upon time of, of alarm, based upon daytime, nighttime, all these factors that, that Doug just talked about, more often than not, we are arriving and encountering very uh, significant challenging fire conditions that quickly grow into uh, significant all hands or multiple alarm fires. It is the smaller size commercial buildings that start off small, that have a timeliness of response, that we end up utilizing uh, residential tactics for, residential benchmarking for. We don't have an appreciation for tactical mobility, air management, uh, the degree of, uh, of engagement and how far into the building we get into, uh, protective systems and so forth. 
we just don't have an appreciation of how bad the environment can change relative to fire dynamics of the compartment and structural integrity. Those are the most critical aspects. So let's quickly, I'm going to give you a, a couple of uh, bullets listings here of the small footprint commercial in terms of the types. So there's the standalone, if we think about the McDonald's as a standalone or the or the Chick-fil-A as a standalone um, or a pizza shop, small little pizza shop, coffee shop, what have you, or even that standalone little retail building, typically of five or 6,000 square footages. It's a standalone building on some type of siding and a footprint. There is a common three, four, and six level grouping that we end up finding because it's a, it's a very economic, because uh, economics end up driving a lot regarding construction and other orientations, but that three, four, uh, or six, sometimes eight tenant spaces that are all under one roof in that small little uh, type of strip or commercial building or uh, aspect. There is the one-stop type of store, meaning it's it's dedicated for one stop and go in to, to have a certain type of commodity available availability. It's a convenience store. It's the retail service or other type of commodity type of store, uh, food service, uh, the neighborhood centers, community centers, strip centers. Uh, there are groupings. There are adjacent types of uh, centers, adaptive reuse or embedded uh, areas. And then we get into the larger type of footprinted type building. So each one of these has certain types of construction that is common. But again, if we talk about the most common features of today's construction systems, we talk about the smaller size building, in terms of the types of spaces and the construction features, it is very likely going to be of an engineered construction system of type five, engineered structural components, um, or it's going to be typically a type two, uh, light gauge metal constructed building, or it's gonna be the hybrid, which utilizes a little bit of both, predominantly one more than the other, which ends up leading it to a classification of either type two or type five. So, and again, the best place to recognize that is during the construction phase, whether you're doing it individually or as part of the formal process of, uh, of uh, a company getting out there and doing it in a formal pre-fire plan or just a site visit to gain some knowledge of construction and those particular types of features. What would you say, Doug, uh, is some of the significant challenges of the uh, standalones that you've experienced, whether it be from those that are being built or the types of fires that you've uh, encountered from a construction standpoint? Uh, the biggest thing that I'm, I'm beginning to see or I've seen uh, the most recent and in, in relating back over time period is, you know, these buildings are, are generally built and the loading inside them are, are fairly high. Uh, the challenges of manipulating and operating in them are, you know, difficult, especially hose line deployments. Uh, the biggest thing that, that I'm seeing is accessibility to them. Uh, as you throw up a standalone store, and, and one of the things I think about is even the McDonald's, even though you can drive around that building and has a drive through, your accessibility to the building is limited uh, in a lot of cases based on the fact that there's cars parked there. Um, you know, the amount of doors that they have, they have a lot of windows that go around these buildings, uh, especially in restaurants, but they have very limited doors that you can get into. Uh, I think about the Dollar Generals and the family dollars that are popping up, especially the Dollar Generals that are all over the place. Uh, they have front doors that go in and they generally have some type of a back door or roll up door. 
and that's it. I mean, you don't have a lot of access to the building. And, you know, to me, that's a huge, huge challenge when you're trying to do deployment, you know, for fire ground and, and hose line, you know, advancement. Some of the challenges are in our, our buildings that are being renovated is how they're renovated and what's changed them that uh, that propose, you know, unique challenges as, as far as the design features or how they've been repurposed. Those, those are popping up. And I, I think the biggest thing is a lot of this is occurring and it's it, with the growth and the things that are occurring and, and how busy some companies are, we're missing them. And I think that's probably our biggest challenge is our focus is not there on probably one of the most critical tasks that we have. And that's understanding our battleground that, that we're operating in on a daily basis. I think it's important that our listeners recognize, too, that, uh, you know, as a starting point, the codes uh, give us a basis in which the buildings are being built as economically as possible. So one of the distinctions of commercial buildings is that they are built as, I don't want to use the phrase as cheaply as possible, but they are built with a degree of efficiency in mind to build it to the minimum code requirements that is uh, aesthetically appealing to the public to draw someone into that particular commercial building uh, based upon its occupancy and usages and based upon the kind and the manner of construction, meaning the era and the vintage, the methods and the materials that are being utilized. We have some buildings that are robust and have a degree of resiliency that can take a beating and still, still stay up. And we have other buildings that can uh, be uh, very much impacted by minimal fire and or flame or heat impingement in a very, very short duration of time that creates a series of predictable performance factors. In other words, we have compromise and collapse that can occur very, very early on in the stages of our operations. Um, and again, it's just a matter of what is common to your jur jurisdiction response areas. Um, I think it's important to make note, especially as we move into our next episode when we start talking more about uh, uh, operations and so forth, one of the most common terms that when we talk about commercial construction uh, has always been uh, the taxpayer. And unfortunately, we've invested a lot of time over a lot of decades of time talking about taxpayer strategy and tactics and operations. Uh, it's just about embedded in all of our tactical books and methodologies and even in our construction books. But... Uh, when we talk about today's commercial building or today's taxpayer, distinctively different when we talk about operational timeframes, uh, the tactical windows, what one can expect in terms of the survivability of that building under fire duress and the time factors that we have to operate in there. The taxpayers of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, commercial buildings of that era of time are not what we're getting here over the last 20 plus years. And it's very, very important to note that there's a major distinction in that standpoint. And one of the things too, Chris, to, to really look at is they try to make them look that way. Absolutely. On, on the yeah. outside, it, yeah. it, it's actually a, a facade that is put up to to give that appearance. And, and most of these taxpayers that are going in today are, you know, not, as you said, not like it. It was the brick and joist and, and you know, those type of buildings, type three buildings that we were seeing back, you know, in, in the, the time period when they were originally built. Now we're seeing type five constructions going up and they, they just give you the illusion. And that's unfortunately what we have to take into consideration is, you know, what what is the real 
deal versus the illusion that's presented. Yeah, very, very much. And that's so. and that, that definitely commercial structures. And that that requires a whole different uh, skill set level um, on size up. And again, we've got to stress that there's a different type of commercial size up versus residential size up. As is, as is the company level size up as the command size up. So um, some really, really good points here. Well, we're starting to wrap up our, our, our segment here on uh, talking about construction. And man, we just started just scratching the surface. And I, I'm looking forward to expanding a little bit more about construction because the construction component is so interrelated when we talk about operations. I mean, operations has everything to do with the building, the construction, and how it influences our decision-making process. And I want to end off our program here with a couple of quick bullets as as uh, as food for thought for our next conversation. So we've talked distinctively about the difference between residential and commercial, and I've got a couple of things up here on my screen that I want to run through just in terms of risk associated with decision-making influencers dealing with residential commercial. I'm going to just say these things. I'm going to run through this list, and we're going to Excuse me, we're going to talk more about these things in part three of our continuing series. We talk about the commercial fire ground dealing with the operational side. So residential, typically we are uh, referring back to prescriptive codes and a very distinctive predictability performance. We talk about commercial construction. We have performance-related codes, protective systems, life safety, predictability of performance. When we associate our decision-making and risk dealing with residential, the focus is, is on civilian rescue, severity, urgency, and growth. On the commercial side, we're talking about fire suppression, the limitations of extension, the mitigation as it relates to civil, uh, severity, urgency, and growth. And primarily, and now we're associating ourselves with civilian location-based demands, depending upon where our civilians may be located, which is distinctively different than our residential. Residential, we talk about fire behavior, fire dynamics associated with the compartment, uh, structural integrity, primarily associated with floor and or roof systems. On the commercial side, our structural integrity primarily is for roof systems and perimeter walls, unlike the residential. And we are associating ourselves with fire behavior associated with event path and flow path in terms of fire propagation and fire intensity. Residential, fire load packages, dealing with the building load and the fire load. On the commercial side, fire load packages, both building load and the occupancy load. Residential, fire dynamics within the compartment and the voids. Commercial, fire dynamics on the entire building relative to the structural load and the aspects of exposed construction and the presence of voids. Residential smaller, shorter reflex times to initiate actions and get into a degree of engagement. On the commercial side, a much greater emphasis on tactical mobility and challenges and also indoor positioning based upon where we may be in that particular structure. And then uh, again, we have uh, some aspects dealing with uh, uh, reflex times, shorter reflex times, uh, versus more longer times with the, regarding the larger footprint commercial buildings. Tactical windows, again, there's variables both in the residential and commercial, uh, as well as the resources. Um, I think residentials are more resource variables. On the commercial side, there are time-dependent resources. And then lastly, we deal with compartment-level integrity on the residential side, and we are dealing with fixed system operability 
and building structural integrity on the commercial side. So a couple of quick items there to, to throw out for the conversation. Um, and again, we look forward to uh, speaking more about some of these details. So we, again, just got into a, a little bit of our conversation here on building construction, but not anywhere nearly enough. We may, again, utilize this conversation sometime in a future episode to get into more construction. So again, we may reference uh, on social media, we did a couple of programs a couple of years ago on a two-part series, Doug, if you recall, on the commercial fire ground, a little bit different, but uh, along the same lines here. So our next episode, I'm not sure which program it will appear on, but our next episode in early 2024 in January, uh, we'll be continuing our conversation on the commercial fire ground, focusing in on operations, first arriving construction tactics and safety. Look for an expanded program, probably a two-hour segmental program, but talking about fire ground ops. Our guests will include uh, Chief Aaron Heller out of New Jersey, Chief Jason Hovelman out of Missouri, Chief Doug Klein, who again is a regular guest on our show, and maybe one other guest that will come in from the West Coast or East Coast, not quite sure where, to talk about ops dealing with the commercial fire ground. So, Again, I think uh, again, I thank you, Doug. It's always a pleasure, brother, to uh, have our conversations here. And I think uh, uh, again, we're continuing a much-needed conversation. Uh, our only limitations is time. We could be talking about this for another couple of hours, but again, we don't don't want to uh, get too far along. So, my appreciation for what we did on your program, kicking off this particular series and our continuing series. And again, hopefully, our listeners will listen in for our upcoming programs, either live or uh, in their recorded versions, meaning live, meaning the, the webcast, or listen to the uh, podcast downloads. So, again, until next time, companies are in quarters off the air. Stay safe. But keep in mind there's a job being worked somewhere in the streets in your city, across the country, and around the world doing what we do best and being who we are, and that's firefighters. So, again, uh, this is Chris Nam, Doug Klein, signing off. Thanks for being on our episode of Buildings on Fire, Taking the Streets, talking about the commercial fire ground specific to the built environment. So thanks and see you next time around. Thefirestore.com, equipping protectors with passion. That's how we operate and it's how we live. We understand that having the right gear can make the difference between life and death. Our goal is to get you the gear you need when you need it, at prices you can afford. Visit us at thefirestore.com and shop our deals page. Breathing in diesel exhaust fumes is like walking into a fire without a mask. Over time, those toxins lead to cancer. Protect yourself with MagnaGrip, the easiest, most reliable exhaust removal system that features a true 100% seal to eliminate diesel exhaust fumes. To get free grant assistance, visit magnagrip.com. 